back. Welcome team to the 90 or Nothing podcast show. We're cutting and camp drafting G-O-L-D is literally dripping from the ceiling here at the podcast booth. Well, what a huge first season we've had. This, we're up to episode number 12, which is awesome. But this is going to come to the end for season one. But don't worry, we'll be back in the new year with season two, bigger and greater things. But before all that ends, there's still plenty to happen throughout the year. The Futurity Finals in Fort Worth, Texas, are coming up on the 15th of December on Sunday. But that will mean getting up at about 6 o'clock Monday morning Australian time to make sure you catch up on all the cool finals because it's I don't know what horse is going to be in those finals, but I can guarantee you it'll be unreal. Around mid-January, we'll have the ABCRA National Finals. So good luck to our Camp Draft and Rodeo crew that will be hitting that up. We'll definitely try and cover that as much as we possibly can and can't wait to watch it. And then, end of January, start of February, the most anticipated event of the year, Landmark Classic Horse Sale. I know I'm definitely looking forward to it. We'll both be there, sitting up in our trade stall, the 90 or Nothing and Camp Draft Training Online trade stall. So be sure to jump up there and come and say g'day to us. We'd love to hear from you. Well, this week's episode, I got to sit down with a cutting horse trainer, Jackson Gray. Now, Jackson works for Sunkissed Quarter Horse Stud in Queensland as a professional cutting horse trainer and does a marvellous job. He's only a young bloke and he's certainly giving it all he can. He's one of the most passionate blokes I've ever met about the cutting scene and, and I really enjoyed just sitting down with him and talking horses. This last episode, guys, for Season 1 is proudly brought to you by our good friends and sponsors, Camp Draft Training Online and Select Size. Select Size is a site dedicated to the promotion and celebration of stallions and people involved in the Camp Draft Cutting and Challenge Disciplines the media home for some of Australia's best. View their full profiles and let Select Size help you make those all-important breeding decisions based on the facts. To keep your finger on the pulse, visit www.selectsize.com.au. Jackson, good to catch up with you, mate, finally. Yeah, no, thanks very much, mate. Thanks for... Thanks for in, um inviting me to speak and I just wanted to say I really enjoy the concept of, of what you're doing um I, I, I like I, I just said to you before um before we started here some of the I was, I was probably a little bit maybe apprehensive to want to be interviewed about something because you know I, I haven't done what some of the guys you've in, interviewed have done yep but then you know listening to other podcasts sometimes um, everyone's got an interesting story, so hopefully I do too. No, I'm sure you do. You're a bit of an avid podcast listener. I, I am. I, I, I um, you know, listen to your one yep. plenty, and I listen to the, the Section K as well there in the States. No, it yep. keeps me entertained when I'm in the truck. There's definitely some good ones out there now with the horses. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. No, well, that's good. So where did it all start for you? Take us right from the beginning. Right, uh, well, to, to be honest... Um, so my dad trained cutting. Well, he he trained cutting horses, I think, in the eighties. Yep. So he got going. I think he might have got going in the early eighties, maybe even the seventies. Right. Um, so he's been in it a while, 
And so I grew up into it and he was sort of when I was a kid, he was back as a non-professional, mm. but he trained a lot of really good horses. He had a futurity horse every year. He pretty well made the non-pro futurity final every year without fail. And so I always got to show good horses and they were, they, he, he and mum bred good horses. They were good types. They were cowie. And I just got to benefit. I just got to ride good horses. So that's where it got going. So in the 70s and 80s, what were the sort of bloodlines you were looking at then? Well, I, I, look, I'm, I'm not a heap, not 100% sure, to be honest. I, I know where it started with mum and dad's breed of horses is they bought a mare off uh, Elliston, off Packers. Oh, right. Um, well, sorry, a client of dad's bought it. Yeah. Dad trained it for the futurity, I think, Fred Johnson might have showed it in a, like a pleasure futurity. It was back when horses used to do everything. Yeah. And Dad found her in the futurity. That was, I think she was born in the 80s, that mare. And um, that mare was called Miss Sunita Bud. And Mum and Dad ended up buying that mare off the client. And um, she was basically the dam and then became the grand dam of, of their breed. Right. And she was, a, she was by... Um, uh, imported stud called Shoebud. Right, so some really old breeding there. Yeah, yeah. I'm not too familiar to it, I just know that good types are now Cowie. Yeah, well, that's all you need. Mm, mm. Yep, so growing up, you're born in Tamworth. Yep. And uh, did you school through there and everything? Yeah, so um, yeah, I went to, went to their place was at Moonby. Yep. Um, 100 acres there, really nice little place in the valley. Um, went to primary school there at Moonby, went to high school at Farrah. Yep. Um, yeah, and, and I probably didn't really get that interested in the horses till I reckon it was about 2001. I think that was the year that Todd won the Gold Cup on one more spin. Right. And I just remember as a kid watching that, and then I, I think I, after that was when I started to get into riding the horses. So I guess I was 11 or 12 or something like that. Right, so mm. that initial little spark really put you into it. Yeah, you know, I did pony club and everything before that, and I think we did a bit of quarter horse stuff, you know, all the pleasure and the the, the English stuff. And But, I mean, I probably, I don't know, you're probably not interested in anything that much when you're a kid yep. solely, but then that got me interested in cutting. Yep. And I think I started showing, could have even been the next year. Oh, really? Yeah. Straight into it. Mm. Yeah, right. So then you... Grew up through there, doing just dabbling in the cutting. What did you do after you left school? Um, so I finished in 2006. I took a year off. Yep. Because mum always wanted me to go to uni. Yep. Um, As mums do. Yeah, yep. yeah. So in 2007, sort of my year off, and I think, um, I know, I, I went, I, I kind of, Phil Dawson moved up around home. Right. And, you know, I'd been showing them the youth and the non-pro and done all right, and I really admired his horses. Yeah. So I, I got hold of him one day and I went on a trip with him once down to um, down to sort of Gippsland in Victoria and went to a show with him all the way down there and took a gelding that Dad trained. And after that, I I worked for him for oh, four or five months leading into the futurity. Yeah. And then sort of travelled with him throughout the year. And I went to the States as well that year um, with, with, with Mum, um, went and showed in the youth that at Fort Worth and also the... What was that with the scholarship program or...? Yeah, or? so so we we just went over, because it's called the scholarship cutting. Yeah. Um, I think you've got to win it to, or do well, place up in it to 
And I, I, I showed a horse that Russ Benson trained here and right. had been exported over to there. Terry wow. Clifford was working it. Yep. And we, yeah, that was a good experience. And then we were also doing the high school rodeo thing where they had cutting with it. Yep. And we went to that year. That was the second time I'd gone over. And I showed in Springfield, Illinois, on a little playgun mare that another Aussie guy had trained. Right. So, yeah, so I was pretty lucky to ride some good horses over there. So did you say, what, what year was this, 07? It was 07, yeah. Yeah, right. And so how, how long did you stay there for? Just a month. Just a month? Yeah. yeah. We, we went over in, I think, 04 and 07 yeah. for the high school rodeo thing. And I think the first, the first time we went over, I showed a horse of Greg Smith's in Idaho. And, yeah... Then the second time we did both cuttings and I think the first time we put like something like 10,000 miles on the car just driving around different oh, states in a month. Wow. So, so it was good experience. I was always fascinated about going to the states and the year, I don't know if it was the first or the second year that I went, but Eddie Flynn had won, I think he'd won the, the four-year-old at, well, he'd won the Derby over there the year before and I remember I got a poster yeah. And it had Eddie Flynn, and it's on the it was on the back door in my bedroom. Yeah, you know, and I always yeah, I don't know he he was doing extremely well at the time, still does, and um, yeah, you know that was I was always in, intrigued to go over. Yeah, so sounds like once you got the bug, it's just become a serious passion of yours, and you seem to eat, live, and breathe it really. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it sort of consumes my life pretty well now. Yeah. So, um, well, that's yeah. great. <laughs> yeah, and so I think so. I went to uni after that. All oh, right. Um, yeah. I I didn't finish my degree. I was there for eighteen months. Yeah. Um, I just didn't like being cooped up. Yeah. Um, and so I left there and I went and worked for uh, Dean Holden for twelve months. Mm-hmm. Um, when he was here at Nundle and um, yeah. So really, I never probably from you know the early or mid 2000s until you know over the next decade I never really missed any years where you know there was no years where I wasn't going and showing in one way or the other yep um and that job working for Dowie then led me when I finished up there I somehow was able to land the job I've got now which was really fortunate yeah and I've been there seven and a half years now right Right, so just going back a little bit, yep. working with those different trainers, what was it like adapting to their different styles? Like, you know, how different is it? Um, well, probably, so, what, you know, I'd learnt, I'd learnt how to show from Dad and how to work a horse a bit, And but when you're a kid and you're at home and, you know, and you, it's your parents, you only listen as much as you listen, you know, and, and probably going to Phil Dawson's, that was a really good... Um, he got me to think outside the box. You know, he was highly competitive at the time. He still is, but he, he just probably started to, when I worked for him, he just started to do really, really well. Won some big age events and um, I really liked his style. His horses were, uh, even before I went and worked for him, his horses were going stop big. They moved good. They were very efficient, very clean. I liked the way he showed them. It appealed to me for whatever reason. Yep. Um, and then when, Dean moved here, um, you know, I was, I was probably further along in my evolution of, you know, I, like I trained my first horse when I was at Dean's, yep. um, my first futurity horse, 
he had a he's got a really good approach to training horses. He works his cows really well. His angles are good. He's he's got some really smart, uh, I guess, expressions or rules he works by that he's told me. And probably a lot of what I picked up watching him, I've um, it probably didn't sink in until when I was, you know, the next couple of years when I was trying to train futurity horses. But yeah, um, you know those those top guys they probably don't do a lot different, but the little things they do are what make their horses unique. Yeah, so it wasn't it wasn't too um certainly wasn't difficult to adapt into those guys because i guess because what they do is really good yeah mm. essentially well, what was your first futurity horse you trained uh it was a well there's probably three years there in a row yeah the first futurity horse i showed i rode her a little like i dad let me work for a fair bit as a three-year-old it's called bridget bardock but he trained her yeah and i got third and non-pro futurity on her and and finally at a couple others. Right. Then the following year, I trained a lots of acres filly. Oh, right. um, and, you know, Dad had to step her on and fix her up a few times. Yeah. Um, but I got her shown and we got her sold and she's out there showing now in um, central Queensland. She's a good mare. Um, still cutting. And then 2012, when I was at Dowie's, was the first one I had from the get-go. She was a Who's Top Cat have a mare called Special Sale. Richard Bull actually gave me the service. Right. So, yeah. That's he, pretty cool. Mm. Yeah. So, run us through your program from breaking them to through their two-year-old year. What's involved with that process? Just talk a little bit about that. Well, um, for me, I mean, and it's probably the same for most people, yeah. there's no doubt for our, for if you want to make a cutting horse, or you just want to make a good broke horse, you want to start them early, you know, I'm a big believer they need to have two years. So we, we break in our horses straight after the futurity. Yep. So in June, and they'll be futurity horses two years later. Yeah. Um, I get my deal. I picked up, I've picked up bits and pieces from everybody. Yeah. I got to spend a month with Darren Simpkins oh, yeah. in the States a few years ago, and I got a lot from him. But I, it's probably, to, to be honest, when I get a breaker, I just like them... When I start one, I like them to be. I take. I, I probably take longer than a lot of people, maybe, to really get them advanced. But I just want them really comfortable around me. Yep. And easy. I I want to get it to where it's easy as yep. quick as I can. There's nothing worse than. I'd rather. I knew. I know. If if a horse came to me from a, someone breaking it in, I'd rather it be a bit green, but it ties up. You can throw a saddle on it without messing around. You can get on it without trying to kill you. You know, and and you can teach it. It it relates, it relates to its feet. You know, um, you know, and you can use your feet on it. And it's had a back cinch, and it's had spurs. And um, to me, that's I spend a lot of time, and some take longer than others, but just to get them comfortable, because even if they don't get down the road in terms of working a cow as early as as another one, I think in the long run you're better off once they once they're comfortable with you. They're far better to easier to learn but yeah basically i spend six months from june till christmas yep i want them started pretty decently on a cow by that point and pretty broke yep um and then the next six months which is leading into the futurity their year the year before them yep um you get pulled away from home a lot doing with your other with your three-year-olds and so quite often you get three days or four days a week on them not a full week um, but I try to haul them if I can. Yep. Take them out a little bit. 
So they get it, that bit of exposure, and then I try to pump a lot of cattle into them. You know, they'll work the cattle after the three-year-olds. I never work freshies at that stage, but I try to get a lot of cattle into them um, and get them really proficient in two hands. Um, and then as soon as you get done the futurity of the year before, it's kind of like get home. You know, it kind of dawns on you, these next ones, they need to start getting solid now. Yeah, wow. You know, and then you start... That's when things start getting creative, you know. You're trying to get them to cut and do a bit themselves and you throw a bit of technique out the window and and then you end up putting them back together again because they've started to cut but they fell apart somewhere else. But that's that six months, I reckon, from the futurity of the year before yep. to Christmas before they go to the futurity, that six months is the... Vital. That's the vital time. Right. Mm. And is it hard to balance between your twos and threes at that point? Like, there's only so many hours in a day... Well, that's a big thing. I think you've just got to be honest with um, what you can handle. Yeah. Um, like we we don't ride big heaps of horses. It's yeah. It's just the two of us. It's just Emma and I that that ride them. Um, so, I mean, at the moment, I got five maturity horses. We've got um, four two-year-olds. Uh, well, six two-year-olds actually, um, and then we've got. A couple of horses that are going to landmark, you know, there's we're probably only riding 14, 15 a day, yeah, and that's a pretty good number for me. You yep. know, if, if we had more, you'd need more staff, you know, yeah, more costs involved, yeah. But basically, the way I like to do it, and most people I've worked for are the same you get up, you, you always work your three year olds first, then, then you work your twos, and then you work whatever else is there, yeah, because your three year olds can't miss. You really can't miss with your two-year-olds because that comes around quick enough. Yeah. You know, and that's how you need to structure your day if you want to try and make a good three-year-old. Right. Yeah. And then, and obviously at different periods of time when your show horses come back in, you've got to mix them in there somewhere too, but um, they're pretty easy because they only need a few weeks here or there before a show. Yeah. So once they're set, you're pretty right. Yeah. I reckon if they've had a full program, once they've, they come around and they're getting ready to go to the derby, they should be pretty right. Right, so we're seven, around seven months away from our futurity in yeah. June. What are you doing with your threes now? Well, um, well, I, um, I, I had a, so, so I'm kind of um, really, I'm really pushing myself. It's the first year I've got five yeah. futurity horses. Never had that before. Of course, five is as many as we can show. Yes. Um, and... I'm really pushing myself to to do well. I, I need them to be good for my evolution in my career and my business or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I'm happy. I've got a pretty good little crew. Yeah. Um, you know, and and I'm if I kind of look back on the past, everyone's been everyone has plenty of bad luck, but I've had three or four instances in the last five or six years where I've had a really good three year old, and it's collect or it's done a paddock injury and I've missed a heap of time between Christmas and the futurity on it and I haven't been able to be competitive. Yeah. The first two years I was at Sunkist, I I made you know, I, I fell short by a point or two from the open futurity final and that's probably a bit to do with, you know, me not showing them quite well enough. There was not much in it, but I had really solid three year olds. I finaled in the limited I think I made three limited futurity finals and two gelding incentive finals, I had solid three-year-olds. Yeah. And then since then, I had 2015, 2016, 
2018, 2019, I had these really bad luck stories with 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 paddock injuries and just ridiculous stuff. So I'm hoping that's behind me. <laughs> and this lot. Last year, I had a dual smart ray filly. She she um, kicked a, a post in the fence and fractured a splint bone, and she missed from the end of March through till two weeks out from the futurity. Wow. So that really put a dent in things. Yeah. But I had a heap of cows organised, and I was really frustrated. So I just got these these ones that are three now. They were two then. They just got to work fresh cows all for three months all yep. the time across out of a herd. And because I was like, well, these ones, I'm going to get them there. Mm. And that's it, you know. And, and so I'm pretty determined with that. Um, so they've had a heap of cows. And we, you know, in terms of what we're doing, I'm trying to get them to cut. I want a cow to pull them. I want to be able to, basically, I just want to be able to push them off my cow foot, get a pocket. I want them to be able to rate the cow, not be blasty off my feet. Just allow me to, allow me to manipulate them with my feet and push them around. Yep. I want them to go to a stop, I want them to be still, and I want a cow to pull them through the turn. And that's kind of all it we're doing. sounds easy. <laughs> yeah, well, if, if you keep it easy, it probably is a lot easier. But Yeah. And, and trying to haul them a bit, so um, I just spent two days working with Matt Oakley. Yep. Um, we were working at night the last couple of days, and, and I'm going to go to Glen Innes um, um, back up there and, and work with Phil Dawson for a couple of days and see if I can get out to... Rob Hodgman's and yep. if I can get him to answer his phone and <laughs> just try and yeah, get, get exposed and have a few people throw some stones at me and make yeah make me get better. Yeah, because there's no hiding the fact that this horse training gig, especially training cutting horses, it's a hard gig. And especially as you're going through, you know, you're still, essentially you're still doing nearly an apprenticeship. It takes Definitely. 20 years or yep. so to get to that level. Yep. What is that, how does that, it's it's got to be taxing you mentally, surely. Definitely, definitely. Like, I'm I'm really lucky. I'm definitely with the job I've got. Yep. Um, working for Sunkiss, working for Barbara Williams. She sends me down the road. Um, I'm very fortunate. Probably, if I wasn't there, I wouldn't be doing this job in the capacity that I'm doing it. Right. Um. You know. It's it's a it's been for exactly what I told you before. When I've had good, like the be all and end all is doing well at the futurity. Yeah. So when I've when I've had what I feel were good three year olds in a good spot, and then something struck them down, like you know needing to have colic surgery, or you know I think I've had my fair share of you know a little bit of bad luck yep. with that stuff, and that's really frustrating because then it just sets you back because that's. That's our, you know, to use someone else's words, that's our harvest. You, if, you, if you go to the futurity and your horses look good, that's when you can pick up more horses and more business and more clientele or, you know, or in my instance, you know, get a, you know, get maybe a better pick of the horses at home or whatever. Yeah. And, like, I've had my tastes of success. Like, I've made 23 open age event finals. I've, you know, I'm still in the limited. I've won just shy of 100 grand. But, um, you know, it's basically like the everyone's got their own pressures and the pressure is for me i need to make this as viable as i can make it yeah. because it's it's the primary part of my life and my income and at some point i'm not going to have the luxury of being at sunkist yeah so i'll have to i need to i need to make it fit yeah so it definitely it's definitely taxing and 
especially when you you know you're a competitive person i like to do i like to do well yeah um so yeah, it can be can be frustrating yeah very yeah so talk a little bit about the horses you've got this year what are their breeds what are they um i've got two for barbara yeah um, for sunkiss that one's a highbrow cd that ben o'reilly started he had it when he was working for leachy he had it for six months yeah um she's out of a lethal mare that's out of colonel's destiny she's really cowy good little mare got a metallic jaguar for barbara too wow it's a pretty talented um pretty talented mare too she's a bit tricky but yeah um i've got one for wayne brown he's a, been a really he's been a client of mine for the whole time i've been at barbara's yeah and he's a, he just lives up the road he's a good mate too it's a right. it's a phalaris yeah um, and it's a it's a really nice mare, um, very cowy, very good mover. Yeah. And then I got two of two of Emma's, two of our own. Um, oh really? Uh, a Phalaris gelding out of a mare that she showed that Troy Randall trained. Um, that's a full sister to Foolicious, the one of Shirley. Yep. And then I've got a full brother to Marilyn Munro, the mare that Dad trained that I've shown a lot and done well on. So we've got some pretty good genetics. Yeah. Yeah got some strong prospects definitely you know and and they're all well i wouldn't still be riding them if they weren't if they weren't good in the areas i feel they need to be you yeah. know they're not they're certainly not good every day but um i think they're good horses and yeah i think they're in a decent enough spot so anyway, just gotta get the job done so with your program with them how many days would you be working the flag and how many days would you be working cow ideally yeah well that's definitely the big thing with the conditions, but um, yeah. I, ideally, but ideally, just probably once on the flag. Like I remember when I when we when I worked at Doey's, he's always Monday he'd work the flag and then he'd work cows. Yeah, you know, and then sometimes cows might have to go home early, or or you know you have a you have a week where maybe you you don't have a mob of cows or, or the cows are a bit ordinary and you just go and work the flag right but ideally if you can work the flag on monday and then work cows the rest of the week but then sometimes as your three-year-olds start to get more solid you might work them flag on monday work count them tuesday and wednesday and they and they're good and you feel like well i'll just i'll give them a few days off yeah start again next week yeah but you probably don't tend to do that until they're getting pretty solid right because i i think for me the years i've had good three-year-olds that have made finals at Tamworth and I, ha- I haven't made the, the open futurity final yet but I've made the limited and the gelding as I said the years I've done well those horses from Christmas to the futurity they had a week off here or there they weren't in when I was leading up the futurity I wasn't working very hard yeah they were they, were, they had full bellies uh, full of hay yeah they were fresh to their job yeah you know they were yeah, they were they were feeling as good as they can. So previous to that, are you sort of riding them five to six days a week, seven days a week? Um, you know, we try to do it. I try to keep my weekends, my weekends if I can. So definitely five. Yeah. Um, but sometimes six with your three year olds. Yeah. Because it's you. You might get up on Saturday, and just work. Yeah, your three year olds. Right. Um, and leave everything else. You know, but uh, it de- it depends what time of year. Yeah. Okay. Too. You know, like um. You know, this time of year, it's pretty full on. So yeah, if you can do six, absolutely. You know, I mean, I worked them all week at home this week and, and we've worked all weekend and I'm going to keep working the next couple of days. Yeah. But then I, when I get home, I might give them two, three days off. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. I just well, try to do it as I feel. They're not machines, I guess. They do need a day off. Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's all right. What um, you mentioned before about Sunkissed Quarter Horse Stud, just talk a little bit about them and how they've evolved and how they've supported you. 
Right, I will. In a nutshell, Barbara's story is um, so Barbara Williams that owns Sunkist. Yeah, we're just just out of Ipswich at, at Perga, actually next door to the Verat family. Yep. Um, and she got going, I think, in the early two thousands. She had Les Rudd trained for her, then Luke Lyons, and and Luke made some good uh, big age event finals for her, and and then I came up there in. 2000 and uh, June 2012. Right. I think it was June. Or it might have been July. Anyway. And her story... So basically, yeah, she's... She's um, got a heap of mares, you know, and she's bred a bunch of foals. And, and then over the years, we've chipped away at it and we've improved the, the genetics and every year it improves. And um, But her, her facility there, she's got 130 acres there that I'm on. She's got her own place down the road. It's a few hundred acres. Um, she, her investment in what we do seems to be ever increasing. Yeah. Um, she was a sponsor of the Futurity, NCHF Futurity last year, or this year, sorry. Um, she sponsors uh, Armadale, yeah. the big, big derby show there every year. She sponsored us at North Star. Um, yeah, she's a very passionate lady. Loves her horses, um, you know, and believes in her in her breed and in her genetics. And yeah, and um, yeah, she's she's doing the right stuff. And she backs a heap of us too. Yeah, mm. yeah. Well, it's without those people, it just doesn't happen, does it? No, you, you, we, you've, we've got to have them, and they've got to be looked after. So, how can we get more people involved like that? Um, I, I know th- it's a hard question, but oh, definitely. But I think it's about. It's about, um, I just think, I'm a big believer in, and it's probably you could take it as, with the with the, your membership, say in the, in the cutting horse deal, if you keep your members satisfied, yeah. they'll stay and they'll recruit for you. Yeah. That's the way I look at it. It's, I, I probably don't, I mean, you've got to have programs to promote whatever you're doing and get more people in, but if you look after the ones you got, they grow up for you. And that's what I've when I've since I've been at Barb's, we've I've really tried to increase the exposure. Yeah. Like before I went there, I knew Sunkissed Quarter Horse Star existed. Um, they there'd been a few age event finals that her horses had been in, um, but I didn't know where it was really or what they had or the size of the operation. Yeah. So I've worked really hard at promoting that through social media and, and online, through getting some advertising programs with sponsoring shows and things and also really tried to be honest with genetics improving genetics all the time i think if you're going to be good at anything you need to be honest with yourself and what you've got yeah and the genetics that barbara's putting together and and still growing and advancing the crop of horses we're going to break in next year they're outstanding Really, I mean, just good types, well-bred horses, and there's there's paddocks of them. Yeah, and I think she she's seen some pretty good success in recent years, but it's gonna get better. Right, you know, because talking a little bit about breeding, we do have access to the best, some of the best lines in America, and and some of our own, obviously, are some of the you know they're up there as well. What are some of the lines you get along with, or what are some of the lines you really? seeing progress in Australian cutting? Well, personally, I've got along with, better than anything, probably the um, the dual ray lines. 
Yeah. Um, probably not. I haven't had any of those real genuine hot Dilray mares, but we've got sons of Dilray, um, the likes of EB's Phalaris, um, Highway to Hell, yep. uh, Horse in the States, Dil Smart Ray. Yep. Um, you know, uh, there's one here that Chris and Link Bowman are the agents for Don't Stop Believing, Phil Rapp's Dilray yeah. stud. Yeah, I really like those style of horses, and probably the Pepper Burnsmore lines. I've trained a couple of Pepper style shows that I like. They seem to have a good demeanour. Yeah, for me, because I I really like I like to I like a horse that's good and broke in a in a in a bridle yep. with a good neck rein. I um I probably don't hang on to my horses a lot with my hands when I get them solid. I like to get them up and solid. And so a horse that can handle a bridle, horse that can handle your feet. They're good enough minded that they, they take your feet well. Yep. Um, and horses that sort of want to be, you know, they, they kind of want to be low headed. They want to be in the ground. Those are the horses. I mean, probably most people get along with those horses, but I've, yeah, I, I probably really like that style of horse. And I think the, the sons of Dilray, the right sons of Dilray are producing horses like that. Yep. Mm. Definitely. So you said you've spent a little bit of time in the States. Um, you know, you go for a month and do a bit of over there. Who are the guys you spent time with over there? <clears throat> well, I'm, you know, unlike a lot of guys that have spent, you know, two years or three years or 12 months or five years or 10 years in some, some cases. Yep. I've only ever gone, I've been over four times for a month at a time. Yep. Um, and for all sorts of reasons. So twice when I was a kid and that was seeing the you know seeing the derby twice we went to the derby show at fort worth in july yeah and um you know and you watch everybody yeah um you know I, I we were pretty lucky to meet a guy that's in texas now but he was in idaho and a fellow called greg smith right and he was a he's a really good hand yeah um uh the, the two not last time but the time before i went over i, I did a month at john mitchell's right um, at Slate River. Yeah. Yeah. And I got to know John. I did a couple of clinics of his out here. Yeah. I've known him all, you know, known who he is all my life. And he knew mum and dad. And he actually came to me and said, when are you coming over? I said, well, when will you have me? You know, <laughs> so anyway, we made it, we made it fit. I spent like a, a month over Christmas there. And yeah. Yeah. To work with him. Ryan Emerton was there. Yeah. Huey Middleton was there just hanging about. So, we were, you know, it was really good to see all those guys work horses. Um, yeah, that was that was a great experience, and yep. he and John was he's a outstandingly generous guy. Like he just looked after me so well. He didn't right. have to. Yeah, you know. Um, but I really, yeah, I really admire his horses. I got a lot out of that. Um, and last time we went to California, we did that El Rancho show with the non-pro team that Emma was in, and we got to um, oh, we got to watch a bunch of guys like. Um, Russ Westfall and Morgan Crome are working the practice pens all the time, and that was good experience. So yeah, um, uh, yeah, no, That's it. yeah. So I know it's a big attraction for a lot of young people to go over there and train over there. What has brought you back to Australian cutting? It's a like obviously it's a sort of newer sport. It's not the heritage here. Why why would you come back to here instead of stay over there? Well, you know, I've thought about going over there. Before, even not that long ago, we were thinking about it. Like, we were tossing it up. We weren't thinking about it probably seriously, but... Yeah. But I don't know. Probably, if I had my time again, I probably would have 
the 18 months I spent at uni, I would have spent over there. Yeah. You know, but I don't, like, I don't know probably what I do. Where, where I am is just, I'm just there because that's where I am. Yeah. I don't know, I can't, there's probably not a lot of, not a lot of planning. Yeah. But um, I think looking back on it now, I've seen a lot of guys from here go over there and work their way up to where they're working two-year-olds for a trainer over there. And they might get a bit of a chance to show here or there, but then they come back and set up shop over here and they, they've hardly shown, yeah. they've hardly worked a trained horse and they're probably very proficient at breaking and starting a horse and getting them broke and getting them working a cow. But that that funny little period, that six months between the the of the year before and Christmas that I was talking about before, that is the bit where you, you've got to piece it all together and get your horse to cut. Yeah, that's the horse. That's the real horsemanship bit in there, where there's good days and bad days, and you, and you've got to get your horse working a cow. And I think those guys that have spent too much time just working two year olds, yeah, it's probably more important to get them broke, uh, you know, in that time maybe than really hook them to a cow too strong. I mean, I they need to work a cow, but um, so you know, that's probably a good thing that. I mean, I was fortunate that I got to show horses before as a kid, so that maybe that if I'd have done that, it might have set me in good good step anyway. Yeah. But the other thing is too, there's a lot of guys that you don't know of that have gone over there, and it's eaten them up. Yeah. They've gone over and worked their ass off, and and they're not anywhere. Yeah. You know, they're just they ride two year olds, and um, and they well, they're good hands, but. It seems like they can't. They everybody wants to get to that level. Everyone wants to be Lloyd Cox, yeah. You know, but um, there's some reason they they're not there. Well, so in a sense, there's a little bit more opportunity here, I yeah, guess. Definitely, yeah. They're, they're definitely. It's is. growing here. It's new here. Yeah. People want to get into it. That, that's right. You know, I mean, it's it's probably too. It's just um, I don't know. Like I don't know what the the, the opportunity. You know, even if I if I didn't. If I wasn't at Barbara's and say I was doing something else, I'd still be trying to train my own horses and yep. whether I was still a non-pro or whatever, but I would be making sure I was going down the road and going to the fraternity every year. And yep. you know, if that meant falling in a heap and then going back and starting again on the next lot, yep. I'd be doing it. Whereas, yeah, over there, I guess you go over, you work underneath someone, you work at a ranch and and it's usually under somebody and that person's got it sewn up. Yeah, and and they got there. They got there the same way, same way by yeah. working hard. So you can't resent that. No, you know. So um, nothing comes easy. No, you gotta. You, yeah, it'll. It can eat you up if you're not careful. So. Yep, definitely. Hey guys, sorry to interrupt this awesome interview, but I just thought I'd mention a quick word from our great sponsor. Are you looking to get better in the camp draft ring? Well, why not? Why don't you just jump on camp draft training online? and find out all the latest tips and methods from some of Australia's greatest camp draft trainers. Just remember folks, when sparing and jerking just ain't working, jump on www.teamcto.com.au and subscribe to get all their latest tips. I do hope you guys are enjoying this interview. I restarted our conversation with Jackson by asking him how he thought the training and breeding had evolved and changed since the 80s when his dad was training cutting horses. Well, you know, um, I guess, you know, like I said, I probably wasn't 
ever really on a cutting horse until the 2000s you know early in 2000s but the horses i guess the horses that oh well doc spinifex was really dominant then and he's been the best sire we've ever had here but I, as far as the breeding i think the biggest evolution in breeding is has been in trainability yeah. that you know it used to be from from what i can tell it used to be all they had to be cowie and and they could be pretty hot and and because you didn't have to the the judging hadn't hadn't evolved the way it has now it didn't have that same business sense so you didn't you know to be consistent and to make finals and to win money it probably the the pressure wasn't there yeah and now so trainability is such a big thing because you to get consistency out of your horses you've got to be able to use your feet well and they got to be broke and all of that um so that's probably our you, you see a blend i think in good horses their bike you know these good cat studs or, or dual race studs and they've got a trainability about them but they're they're out of some you know they're out of some old cow crazy mare or a daughter of some cow crazy mare you know and and they're they're probably your best horses um in terms of the training it's probably exactly that like i i reckon maybe if you went back 30 years or something like that it was probably or maybe earlier a lot of guys who just train their own horses or they'd have or if they were training a horse for someone else they might just have one it probably wasn't their primary incomes the industry wasn't big enough mm. so the pressure wasn't there whereas you know so if you went you went down and crossed the timeline and your horse did no good you didn't didn't matter so much you know like it might be an amazing horse but you might might only get shown every fifth time yeah whereas now you've seen these programs where I reckon it nearly tipped the scale. At one point, it nearly tipped the scale too far where horses were, they got a bit robotic because they were so trained. And I take nothing away from that because it's really hard to get one trained like that that's really broke that can just go in and out of the same patch of land on, on a cow. You know, every time that cow travels, it travels head to head, goes in the ground, comes out of the ground the same tracks it went in, you know, it rates a cow, you know, because those horses, they're consistent. You can mark 72s on them all day and make a final. Yeah, but you probably won't win. Yeah, but your owners are happy because they've made a final, you know. And it nearly tipped the scales. That I think there's a really good blend happening at the moment where people, the really good guys, they understand that a horse has to be really broke. It has to be consistent. It has to have good form, but it's got to be cow related, mm. and you've got to allow them to be unique. Yep. Mm. So in Australia, we have obviously. Two well, heaps of great horse sports, but I guess our two main cow-related horse sports is camp drafting and cutting. Yeah. Two great industries, two very different sports, but essentially we're after a very similar horse, mm-hmm. athletic and rated cow. Yeah. Talk a little bit about how these two industries maybe collaborate, intertwine, that sort of thing. Well, I um, you know, I've got no roots or anything. Uh, in camp drive or anything like that I've had four or five runs in my life and um, I you know I'd say I say I'm not very good at it but nobody can be good at something they've done four times yeah. you know like it's exactly the same if if someone that drafts comes over here uh, comes over cutting it's going to take them a while to get good too yeah um, which just shows that both sports to be good at them are very difficult yeah 
But I think they really complement each other in that, I mean, first of all, the whole lifestyle around them both. I mean, people want to go, people in Australia, so many people, they want to take their horse, they want a good horse, they want to go enjoy it, and they want to be competitive, and they want to have a beer and have fun and see their mates, and we have a good heritage in that. Both sports allow for that. Um, And certainly the genetics that have come in from the US the, the quarter horse, the trainable quarter horse genetics have certainly added to, um, you know, some of your traditional uh, stock horse lines yep. in, in terms of maturity mm. um, and trainability yep. and, um, and also the training methodologies to get those horses broker so they can work a cow better in the camp. Mm. They can be, you know, it just seems there's a real thirst for knowledge with, with the... The camp, the camp drafters, they have a real thirst for knowledge in getting their horses to work a cow better and getting them broker and, and they're watching cutting and they're watching videos of cutting and the way guys are training their horses. And it's probably only one aspect, obviously. It's only one aspect of uh, what a camp horse needs to do. But it's mm. important. Yeah. So there's, there's a real thirst for that. So I, I think that's, as a, as a cutting horse industry, we're very lucky that so many, uh, so many camp drafters are... I guess looking to our sport and being interested in it, yeah. and at the same time, like our sport, so many guys in our sport are looking to the camp draft industry too because of the the success of their industry and and, and, and what's happening, and also because we want to be connected. Yeah, um, it seems like maybe the previous decade there seemed to be like a breakdown between the two sports. Yeah, um, I don't know if it for various reasons. Um, I can tell you now, anybody who's anybody in the cutting horse game, they want to be connected and involved and intertwined yeah. with the camp drafters because they just, they just complement each other. I mean, I mean, you, you get a lot, you get some really silly stuff from people that don't know in the cutting horse game that don't know anything about camp drafters. They, they'll get a horse that started and, and it doesn't make it's not going to be a futurity horse and they're like oh we'll just sell it as a camp horse it's like well it's bloody 14 hands high it can't run out of sight in a dark night it can't move its front end you're not going to you yeah. know so you do that's just a lack of knowledge yep but there's a lot of horses like I can tell you type wise there's three futurity horses that I've got that I think and people who draft I don't know like I, I don't profess to know much about camp drafting at all it intrigues me I like it yeah. Um, but people that know have told me, oh, I bet you that horse would draft. Yeah. You know, so if I'm able to get them nice and broke and they want to work a cow good and they might have a future, yeah, camp drafting. And it just expands the yeah. horizons. Absolutely. You know, I mean, hopefully they stay cutting with me for yeah. four or five years and, and we can do well on them. But, I mean, it's I think it's good for everybody you know, when the two sports intertwine. Definitely. Well, a camp draft is so competitive nowadays. Like, mm-hmm. you need a 23, 24 yard. Yeah. And then a big outside score to be in the mix to win yeah. in the winner's circle. And it, it's sort of taking a horse that has, not always, not always, but a lot of horses need that strong cow-related cutting foundation in them to yeah. get that that yard score. Mm. So I guess that's where intertwine. Also, I think the, the snaffle bit futurity, I think, has been a great thing talk a little bit about that and how that's evolved well you know i i believe when it started 
the snaffle bit. It was a gateway. It was trying to be a gateway. I guess whoever was in in charge or, or the, you know, the brains of the NCHA at the time, they were trying to find a way to increase membership and increase involvement, you know. Um, you know, the way it's evolved now, so the snaffle bit futurity, it's part of our, the NCHA futurity. It's it's back at Tamworth. It's, it's, it's rich, it's prestigious, um, and I've trained a few snaffle bit futurity horses that, I can't show them. Obviously, like I'm out of that. There's a there's a limit of amount of money you can have won in the NCHA to be able to show in it. That Luke Bennett, who who now has won too much money and can't show in it because he's won it twice, but he showed some horses that I trained. Yeah. And he's expressed to me how it's such a good uh, foundation for horses that he might go and challenge then later. Yeah. Or draft later. Um, and for us, sometimes, you know, when we're starting 10 or 12 horses, say at Sunkist, um, the reality is they can't all be champions, yeah. you know, at, in the cutting pen. Um, but if you've got a still a decent enough horse, I mean, you, you can't take the years where you can take a piece of crap to snap a bit of tutoring and do well, they're gone. Yeah. Like they're good now. They're oh, real yeah. good. Yeah. And, um, you know, and and like, but for us, like, if we start a bunch of horses and and there's something that may not be good enough for whatever reason that that I think I can get it to train to cut together for tutoring and put my hand down on it, the snaffle bit's a great avenue if that horse is still decent. Mm. Um, for that horse to still go, if you can get someone to show it, um, it can still have it's gone and done something. It's had a program. You've got a target. It needs to be this broke and working a cow good by this date. So then you go through the grind and you haul them and you end up with a product at the other end that you can sell. Yeah. Um, we've sold a bunch of horses at the end of the snap a bit for Trudy. Yeah. Um, you know, we had one that Luke Bennett got fourth for Sunkist in two years ago. He, he won it on another another one that, um, that actually mum and dad bred and he got fourth on one for Barbara. And then we turned around and sold that horse at Landmark. Yeah, that horse was a product. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's, a great, it's a great concept. Yeah. Well, this year at Futurity as well, they uh, ran a camp draft. And I thought, me being predominantly a camp drafter, I was all for it. But talk a little bit how that came about and what was the process behind that. Well, I, I'm not sure, but I believe in the past there might have been a draft with the Futurity quite a while ago. Oh. Like maybe, maybe it wasn't the old shed. Or, um, but that concept of the way that was run so that's phil dawson he really he's the brains behind that and the passion behind it um the current ncha board which i'm a part of are really there's a really good mix of people in there and a lot of them have been a part of or dipped their toe in the camp draft industry yeah and they're certainly all very well aware of how both sports can complement each other and how they're important to each other um, there's no breakdown in that, you know. There's 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 certainly no people there that are that are anti anything with relation to those two sports, you know, helping each other out. Yeah. Um, so Phil really drove that. Everyone was for it. Mm. Um, I didn't get to see any of it because I was locked in a room down the end of the ALEC doing a judge clinic. Yeah. Because um, that was that's my portfolio. Yeah. But um, 
it, everyone tells me the cattle were fantastic. It went off with a bang. It, it, it was really good. And the idea, the idea of that is, obviously, we want to bring, we want to bring the sports as you know together as much as they can be. They're different sports, but yeah. But we also want to, you know, there's there's no there's no hiding the fact we want to bring more people to our event. Yeah. You know, people they went, they they went to the draft and they came up to the bar and they watched the pinnacle cutting or the celebrity cutting or whatever was that night. How good was that? Yeah, and they had a good time. Yeah. And then and the sale was on. Mm. on that day so it brings more people to our sale and then you know like you know the the ncha sale it's it's the premier led quarter horse performance horse sale in the country there's no doubt about that and um it you know i've got a horse say for example we've got a horse that we're thinking about putting through that sale and we bred a more predominantly she's by one style as pepto we bred a predominantly to probably go to landmark you know but just turns out we probably want to sell her as a yearling her we feel as though there's more people that she might be that we could market her towards people that want to probably ultimately have a camp horse but there's people there like you know nathan sheen's a really good example of someone that might come to the nchsa he's 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 a drafter yeah um that might come and buy one and take it to the snaffle bit. He won the snaffle bit for Trudy two years ago. Yeah. And then he turned around and showed that horse one-handed. He's got another one for next year, I believe. Yeah. That's what we want. You know, Absolutely. he's he's a perfect example, and and it broadens our sale. Like, there's more appeal. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a. Uh, yeah. We we certainly as an industry we want to cater to as many people as we can, and that's that's how we did it. And everyone tells me it went really well. So that's the best part of it. Yeah, I certainly think it's a great idea and just thought you guys did an awesome job with it. So, just moving on a bit, you said you're on uh, the board of directors with the NCHA and you're the judging director. Yeah. Yep. Just talk a little bit about the the levels of showing and what, I know that can, can confuse a little bit of people at some times, so just run us through what those levels involve. Yeah, well, to steal another director's words, I think they sum it up really well. This, the strength, I believe, in our sport is our structure. Yeah. Um, so we've worked really hard. Well, I say we. I'll people long before I always had anything to do with it. Yeah. Have worked really hard to make a structure that is fair. Yeah. So that people are competing against people they should be competing against. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, so basically, we, have, we kind of have two systems in our sport, we have obviously weekend level, mm-hmm. then we have age event level. So your, your weekend stuff, there's, um, we have a whole host of non-pro classes. So there's, we have the rookies, which is uh, up to, th- uh, people have won underneath less than three grand. And in the rookies, you can show a horse that doesn't belong to you. That's it, like it's our gateway to, you know, get someone in and let them put their hand down. Um, then we have horses, then our, our, our next, non-pro classes 7500 non-pro 15 non-pro open non-pro yeah therefore riders who have won under that amount of money you know right up to 15 once you've won 15,000 dollars at weekend level so excluding age events right you are then an open non-pro so you compete in open non-pro but we structure it so people are competing against people that have had you know roughly the same amount of success as each other right but in the non-pro You've got to own your own horse. Yeah. So in the rookies, you can you can borrow someone's horse, but in the non-pro, you've got to own your own horse. Um, 
And then we have, then for your trainers, I guess, and, and well, they're open classes. We have the novice classes and, and an open event. Um, so anybody can show on them. So predominantly you'll see trainers showing those classes. Yeah. Um, because an open rider, when you're a professional trainer, when you're a professional trainer in our industry, you don't hold a non-professional card. Yeah. So you can't go on a non-pro class. So, um, yeah, you, you'll see a weekend show. You'll see a novice. There'll be a heap of trainers showing horses for themselves and clients. A lot of young horses. And, you know, they're trying to churn out a good solid show horse. And then you'll see all your non-pro stuff. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a good structure in that sense. We've yeah. also got Snaffle Bit at our weekend events as well. The novice non-pro is another class. It's for... It's actually a non-pro class that's based on the amount of money won on on that horse. Yeah. But they are simple, like they're little steps basically every time. But if basically if you're coming into the sport, you know, you start off in your rookies and your 75 non-pro and you go up from there. Right. Um, then at aged event level, yeah. at aged event level, it's kind of broken into three things. So our aged events are for, there that we have, we have aged events that are for horses of particular ages. So the NCHA Futurity is an aged event. We have yep. one at Toowoomba, we have one at Comet, St. George, Victoria, um, and a couple other little ones. And there's your Futurity for three-year-olds, the Derby for four-year-olds, and the Classic Challenge for five- and six-year-olds. Yep. Um, the structures there are your open aged events. So that's an open Futurity or an open Derby. They anybody can show them. Mm. Predominantly, you see your trainers showing them because they can't show them the non-pro stuff. Yeah, but a non-pro can show them the open and do really well. Amelia Servant, great example. Phil Conigan. Yeah. Um, then in your non-pro class, so if you if you're a non-professional card holder, which means that you do not derive an income, you do not receive remuneration. Directly or indirectly, indirectly from training a cutting horse. Yep. You can you can train a camp horse. Yep. But not a cutting horse. Um, then if you if you if you're not making money out of training cutting horses, you can show them the non-pro. Right. Then as a subsection of the non-pro, there's the amateur, and the amateur is for people that hold a non-professional card, but they do not engage in horses in being on the back of a horse in their day-to-day life right and the idea of that is as an association we we thought it was very important to have amateur because we have non-professionals they don't make money out of training cutting horses but they they might be full-time breakers yeah or they might set horses up to go to landmark you know set up camp horses or stuff like that they're non-professionals you know that we want them. We want them to be in the non-pro. We don't want them to have to go and show against bloody Todd. Yeah. You know, and and and, and Aaron and all the all those guys. But, but we realised, yeah, we realised they had an advantage because they spend all day with their asses in a saddle. Yeah. So you, you get a little little handier. Yeah. Yeah. In the amateur, in the amateur, you're we're talking about guys that drive trucks, that concreters, people that sit in front of a computer all day. Yeah. Um, and it's. It's a really important, um, I think, breakdown to have it that way um, because your amateur is your biggest growth area. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly, your non-pro, 
but your, your amateur is such a big growth area because so many people they work full time mm. to pay for their damn horses yeah <laughs> you know so and and they spend all day and most people don't get to spend all day on the back of a horse no the ones of us that get to we're pretty damn lucky yeah um so we've yeah we've tried to create a structure where whilst they can compete wherever they want an amateur can compete and in an in a non-pro class that's or, or an open class they have an amateur section as well where they only have to compete against people who do the same thing as them yeah the only thing i'll say around it is though if you're a non-pro or you're an amateur the ones that do better are the ones that um work harder yeah you know that's at the end of the day um the best example of that he's a professional trainer now but you know i live next door to lincoln Verat, who was a non-professional until about two years ago and he was a very good non-professional because when he was still at when he was at uni and then when he finished and he was and he had a job every morning he'd switch his lights on at bloody four o'clock in the morning work all his horses then go to uni all day then come back and work some more horses and so he wasn't making money out of riding horses he was only riding his own but he was a very good non-pro because he worked his ass off yeah not for any other reason other than the fact that he worked really hard at it yeah you know and anybody i say anybody can do that if yep. they want to, want to, you know, work really hard at it. Put things in place and yeah, yeah. And, make, and make it happen. You know, we all have different things and advantages and whatnot in our life, and but um, yeah, no, I just really admire the people that work really hard. Yeah, but our structures are there to be fair yep. to give everybody a good shot. So staying along the lines of structure, talk a bit about the PCHTA what's that's sort of a new thing that's coming in professional cutting horse training association yeah so uh it was formed really not even 12 months ago yeah but before that it was the pca right. professional cutting horse association so it's the same damn thing but um it's just that it's done in a more official sense so i think i i can't tell you when but i think maybe 15 or 18 years ago something like that the PCA was formed as as a group. The the trainers in our industry are very important to it, yep. important to its evolution, um, and it was formed kind of as a group to improve the professionalism amongst the trainers, improve the way that they could assist in the professional operation of shows. Oh, there was a multitude of reasons. Right, um, we. We've tried to evolve now to where, so the PCHTA, um, of which uh, Steve Byrne is president. Yeah. Um, uh, Phil Dawson's the pro trainer's portfolio holder on the board. Yeah. So he's a big driver in it. Um, Link Bowman, he's been driving the professional and the pro trainers since who knows when. Yeah. He's He's kind of the father of it almost. That's how I see it. He's done more for professionalism than anyone I can think of. Um, the we formed the PCHTA this year with its you know its own bank account, its own um, it's an affiliate of the NCHA. It's an it's an it's got a constitutional constitution. It's an you know it's a proper uh, you know association or whatever you want to call it, um, and it is set up to improve the standards within the pro trainers group within the NCHA. Yeah. 
So, and that can mean a whole host of things. But basically, I think everybody would agree that if we have a list of professional trainers who have met some basic requirements in terms of their professional operation, their conduct within the industry, their ability on the horse in terms of perhaps where, how much they've learned of what they've won, if there's standards, then more members that spend their money with trainers are going to have a better experience. Yep, yep. So that's what it's about. It's a great idea. Mm, I, I definitely think so. I'm a big believer in it. Yeah. Um, so we're at a point now where a lot of trainers over the last few years to become accredited and now which is to become a member of the PCHTA have had to do things like uh, do a Horse Safety Australia clinic, which is a nationally recognised course in basic uh, animal care, um, safety around horses, uh, clinicianship, um, knowing how to uh, train riders safely. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it, it, the, the, the course also teaches us about looking after us, like the proper signage, safety signage around your, your place. Um, yeah. You know, things that seem basic but they're very health, uh, helpful to your professional operation. And then the other things are to be a PCHTA member, to be accredited. Accredited, you also have to have, a, have done a first aid uh, course, yeah. right? and you've got to update that, I think it's every two or three years. I'm due to update mine. Um, hold a blue card, like a working with children's check. Have done a judge's clinic. Yeah. Um, you don't have to be a judge, you've just got to have done a clinic because um, we had trainers out there hadn't done clinics yeah I mean how can you how can you expect to show at the best level you can if you don't know the rules you're looking for yeah um, you, you know uh, I'm trying to think the other the other parts of it um, anyway it, it escapes me but there's quite, oh you've got to have public liability insurance up to a, a, a certain value um, and these things are there to protect the trainer and the the owner alike yeah mm, not neither are more important than the other in fact the the trainers are one of our in my opinion they're the most important marketing tool for our sport they can either market it very well or very badly yeah fortunately there's many that do it really well yeah um you know it's important to you know communicate with your clients um, they're usually when you get clients coming in, they're learning. They don't know class structures. They don't know what it takes to get to the futurity, you know. So you've got to communicate with them. You're you're teaching new people new things. Yeah. Um, you know you've you've got to build them periodically, consistently. They've got to understand what the charges are. Yeah. They 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 need their horses cared for. Mm. They you know, there's just basics within that. Yeah. Um, to give them the best experience possible. Yeah. And we have so many trainers that not, not only are they good, capable horsemen and women, but their horses, they look a million bucks, they communicate well with their clients, they showcase our sport in a positive light, and we're very fortunate to have that. No, I think it's a great initiative, and mm. it's a really good idea for the professional cutters to put things in place to make it really stand out from the rest you know the the other dimension of it if i can add too is that side of it so that i the things i listed are 
those are one section of the things you need to complete to be a PCHTA member and to be advertised and endorsed by the NCHA. Yeah. The other side of it is an achievement thing. Right. So in the past, anybody, and, and, it's, and it's happened, it doesn't happen often, but it has happened, any old Joe bloke can hang a sign on his gate and start taking people's money and say he's a, a cutting horse trainer. Yeah. Because um, we're not... We're not a regulated industry, you know, like a uh, regulated profession. As everyone's probably well aware, when a profession becomes big enough, it starts to become regulated. Yeah. So we're trying to self-regulate. Um, the You don't want people to... I mean, it's, it's up to everybody to do their homework. I mean, you don't... You don't go and hire a plumber unless you ask a few people if he's a good plumber or not. Yeah. So everyone's got to do that. And there's good tradespeople and there's, there's ordinary tradespeople. Yeah. But we're trying to equip our trainers with the best ability to be good tradespeople. Yeah. And then the other section of it is their apprenticeship, their knowledge, their ability. So we kind of recognise it in three areas to be a PCHTA member. Um, f- from, a, from, a, from a date forward... It would be to be a PCHTA trainer, PCHTA, I've said it too many times. Um, (laughs) Yeah, is you have to have been a non-professional who's won, I believe it's 50,000. Yeah. If you won 50 grand a non-pro, you should probably know what you're doing a bit. Yeah. Um, You've got to have spent a minimum of three years working for a accredited pro trainer here. Yeah. Or the like in the States. Yeah. Or elsewhere. Um, Or... There's recognition of prior learning. Right. Someone like a Hugh Miles, Matt Oakley, right. these guys that have achieved really good things in other sports and are very capable horsemen. Um, and you can you can see that we've had people come in and they've done it the right. Like there's an example of it. Like Hugh Miles is a great example of somebody that's come into our sport from a camp drafting background yeah. and done very well because he's equipped to do well. Yeah, he's a very good horseman. Um, Lincoln Verrat, I'll use him as an example. He's a guy that's come in from that non-professional side, trained his own horses, done well at it. My dad was another one. Um, trained horses. They knew how to train a horse because they'd trained their own for a long time. Yep. And they felt confident enough and they wanted to do it as a profession. They felt confident enough they could do a good job in other people's horses and take their money. So they became professional trainers. Yeah. Lincoln's extremely well equipped for it. Yeah. Um, and then Jamie Seckham, I'll use him as an example. He spent um, several years in the, in the US um, working for a, for a cutting horse trainer there and then came here and spent several years working for Todd. Yeah. And he's gone out, accredited. trained professionally. Yeah. yeah. He's accredited and he's done really well. Yeah. Like if you, because prior to this, um, if you wanted to be a pro trainer, there was no, there was no necessary, there was no real path. Yeah. You were just trying to... Put your sign up. <laughs> find your way. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, most people with any sense yeah. would try and learn what they're doing. Yeah. But there was no real pathway. That wasn't like, righto, mate, well, you've got to go and spend three years yeah. with someone who knows what they're doing because you, you, you're not going to know much if you haven't done three years with them or yeah. you've got to have won 50 grand in the... Non- you've, got to, you've got to set a level of achievement before you're going to start taking people's money. Yeah. You know, and um, Warwick, Warwick Screen's another really good example. Um, spent a heap of time in the US working for John Mitchell, John and Darren, yeah. you know, and prior to that in, in, in Canada. Yeah. Really well equipped to be a trainer. He 
he becomes a trainer. He finals in every fraternity this year. Yeah. Like yeah. these guys are just good examples uh, of, of what you guys are trying to promote. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's really good. Well, Jackson, it's been really great sitting down with you and we really appreciate you coming on our podcast. I know I've been certainly looking forward to catching up with you because I know you're the most knowledgeable man I know about this, the industry of cutting and it's just great to catch Fair up with Lincoln. you. Fair that's a big call. No, you are. If, I, if, if, if there's ever a question I need, you're the first man I'll ring. <laughs> well, well, I'll, I'll have to... Um, well, that's... I mean, I suppose, you know, when you're trying to find out a bit more about camp drafting, it's good to have people like yourself as well, you know, that that want to, you know, that want to help other people, you know. Like, I mean, I've got a horse going to Landmark that I trained that Luke Bennett's putting him through, and yeah. I don't know anything about it. Like, I, I won't say I don't know anything. I don't know much about it, so it's good to be able to have oh, other people to touch on. Yeah. Know? No, well, we just really appreciate you sitting down, and, and we wish you good luck in next year's maturity. We'll be definitely cheering for you and hope it all goes well. and. And your horses stay safe and everything's good. Thanks, mate. Appreciate it. Right, mate. We'll catch you later. Bye. Okay, guys. Well, that was the episode with Jackson Gray. Jackson, big shout out to you, mate. Thank you very much for sitting down with us. I could sit down with you for hours and hours and talk just all about horses. It was awesome. Great conversation. My first little takeaway from today's episode was... I love how passionate Jackson is about the cutting horse industry. He's extremely committed and acknowledges how tough it can be, but doesn't matter. Nothing's going to stop him. He's going to stay cutting, which is what I love to hear. I also thought it was really cool how he acknowledged the crossover between cutting and camp drafting. My second takeaway was I really appreciate that Jackson's backed himself as an Aussie trainer. I know cutting's a bigger sport in America and that's where the opportunity may seem to lie. However, it is developing and growing in Australia and I do believe the young blokes like him and the young girls and many others out there that are striving to be young trainers in our industry are going to be the driving force behind it and continue to take it from strength to strength. My third takeaway from today, and I thought it was really cool, but I thought it was very interesting about the Professional Cutting Horse Trainers Association. I think this is a great initiative and should really be taken on board by a lot of industries as we do want to keep up a high standard of training horses. Well guys, that's going to do it for our last episode of Season 1 of the 90 or Nothing podcast show. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and on Instagram and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you guys over the new year. We do hope everyone has a wonderful Christmas and a happy new year. And let's all pray that it rains so we can keep our horses in and there's plenty of cattle to chase in the new year. Alright guys, till next year, we'll see you then.